If you've got a Bible, go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is going to be our passage. Y'all ready to get going with another psalm? Come on now. I'm fired up. Y'all better get fired up. Y'all are like, oh no, it's going to be one of those mornings. He's, he's crazy. We've been in a series this uh, summer looking at some of the psalms, talking about a song for every season of life, that God has given us songs that we can sing no matter what we face. And uh, it's been a very, very honest uh, look at some of the uh, seasons and trials and emotions of life, and uh, many of you have really appreciated that honesty, and so we're going to uh, do that again this morning in Psalm 51. So if you're able, would you please stand with me as we're going to read God's Word? Just a special hello to those in overflow. I've been told they're having to add seats in there, so just awesome what God is doing. So let's look at God's Word here, Psalm 51. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit, and then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Please join me as we pray. Father, it's been sweet these past few weeks to see how your word would stir up honesty in our heart, in our conversation, even as a faith family. God, can I ask you to do that again today? Spirit of God, run all over this place, in our hearts and in our lives, for the glory of Jesus. Break us, sweetly break us before you today for worship. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paris Hilton is my prayer partner. Now listen, listen, Paris and I don't meet every week to pray together and hold each other spiritually accountable. Paris Hilton is my prayer partner because a few months ago I felt very, very burdened to pray for her. 
There's a lot of reasons why, but the main reason was I read an article that asked celebrities what they feared the most. Now, a lot of them gave answers that were fairly common. Some of them were afraid of, like, flying. They were scared to get on airplanes. Uh, Some were afraid of clowns. In fact, Johnny Depp was afraid of clowns, which is rather ironic. (laughs) Some were afraid of dark tunnels. There were a few strange ones, like Nicole Kidman was afraid of butterflies. Who's afraid of butterflies? Um, They were afraid of, uh, uh, Billy Bob Thornton was afraid of old furniture. Really? Old furniture. So there were all these different kind of answers, but of all the answers, the one that really stuck out to me was Paris Hilton's. She said, of all the things that I fear the most, what I fear the most is becoming an old woman. Now, it wasn't the fear of getting old that got my attention. It was why she didn't want to get old. Here's what she said, quote, I can't imagine being a 70-year-old woman because if you're a 70-year-old woman, then you're like not hot anymore. I guess the best thing you could hope for is to be the hottest 70-year-old woman of all the 70-year-old women. Close quote. I I don't even know what to say to that. When I first read that, like, I dismissed it as her being a stuck-up celebrity. But then I realized, I want the exact same thing. No, I don't want to be a hot 70-year-old woman. Don't, Don't be thinking that. I want to maintain my image, too. You see, Paris Hilton has bought into the lie that her dignity and her worth is all about maintaining an image that is perceived to be hot by the men in her life. And the very idea that that image would somehow fade away is what she fears most. That is true for everybody. We all live under this weight of an image. It's why people lie about their weight on their driver's license. Don't say you've never done that. That's why people, they learn the angle to take a picture of the fish so that the fish looks bigger. I don't know who would do such a thing. I I would not encourage that, right? It's why people fudge a little bit on their online profile. Brad Paisley writes, has a song uh, called Online, and here's what it says. In real life, the only time I've been to L.A. was playing tuba in the Rose Parade. But online, I live in Malibu. I've been in GQ. I'm single and rich with six-pack abs that will blow your mind. I'm so much cooler online. Image. I got to maintain an image. I've got to put forth an image. We see this in parenting. A fascinating book entitled Nurture Shock by writers Bronson and Merriman, they did a decade-long research on 
modern self-esteem approaches to nurturing children. The kind of, you know, you're the best athlete on the team. You're the smartest person in that school. You're the prettiest person in the world. They said that kind of nurturing can backfire. Here's what they said. It was fascinating. I'll just give you one quote. One of the worst things you can do is praise a child detached from achievement. Overpraising actually makes them self-conscious, fearful, depressed, and nervous. Why? They start trying to live out an image. Every single one of us in some area of our life feels like we have an image that we have to maintain. And it's almost fearful to think that that would be taken away. Here's what breaks my heart. It's the exact same thing with Christians. It's the Christian image. Hey, brother, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm not struggling with anything. I'm not dealing with anything. I'm okay. I'm all right. Oh, sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that guy. We must put forth a squeaky clean Christian image. Can I just be frank with you? That disgusts God. When you come face to face with the reality of your sin, your Christian image cannot help but to be shattered like glass on the ground. And that's what happens in Psalm 51. Notice the inscription before verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Do you remember the story? David was a man with a great image. Very impressive. He was the great king of Israel. He had victory after victory after victory. Israel prospered under his leadership more than any other. He was loved, revered. He was talented. The guy could write poetry. He could write music. According to the Bible, he was a pretty good dancer. On top of all that, the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. I'm telling you, he had it all. Man, he had it all. He had an image. He was king. And he started to believe his own image. By Psalm 51, he's been king for 20 years. He is, ironically, walking on the rooftop of his palace, looks down below, sees a beautiful woman by the name of Bathsheba bathing, and he has to have her. It doesn't matter that she is the wife of Uriah, a man who is David's loyal soldier right by his side. Way back when David had to flee from Saul, Uriah had been faithful to him, but that didn't matter to David. He sent for Bathsheba. He slept with her. She ends up pregnant. What are you going to do? Man, you got to maintain your squeaky clean image. I'm king. I got to cover this thing up. So, plan A let's bring Uriah home. 
Let's hope that he'll want to do what most soldiers want to do when they return from battle. Maybe he will go to his wife. They'll think it's Uriah's. This whole thing will pass. Uriah refuses to go to his wife while his men are out on the battlefield shedding blood. In fact, he sleeps on David's porch. Plan B, get him drunk. What we discover is Uriah is actually a better man drunk than David is sober. Because he still refuses to go home while his men are on the battlefield and he sleeps on the porch again, plan C. Go back to the battlefield with orders. I want you on the front line. Did the plan work? You bet it did. Because Uriah dies. What does David do? He takes Bathsheba as his wife. And I just wonder if when the preacher said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, that David's thinking inside, I got away with it. Nobody's going to know. Everybody will just think this is a part of our marriage. I've covered it up. Squeaky clean image. And yet God knows. In fact, God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan to tell David a story. Do you remember the story? David, can I tell you a story? Let me tell you about a rich guy. He had all kinds of things, man. He had this amazing land, and he had sheep after sheep after sheep after sheep. And then there was a family that lived in his land, and they had one single lamb, one single sheep. And this great man with all this wealth had a friend come visit. He's going to throw a party. Hospitality is important in the ancient Near East. But do you know what he does? He doesn't take any of his lambs. He sends for the lamb of that poor family, the very single only lamb they have. He kills it and he throws a feast for his friend. And when David hears that story, his blood starts boiling. He is furious and he says, he must die. And you remember what Nathan does, all to be a fly on the wall. He looks right in David's face and says, you are that man. And in that moment, David's sin is exposed, and his image is lying on the ground. And Psalm 51 is his confession. Now read it again with that background. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, my sin is before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How's that for an image? Don't you see, faith family, David has gone from great king walking on the rooftop of his palace to broken man lying on the cold bathroom floor. Stripped of that image he so desperately wanted to protect. Why? Because he sees his sin for what it is. I am going to fight as hard as I can to restore the Christian community to a right understanding of sin. Are you with me? 
Man, guys, hear me. We are living in a culture that so, if sin even exists, they want to water it down. It's a lapse of judgment. It's an unwise decision. It's a, I made a mistake. That's not Psalm 51 when David sees his sin. And by the way, this isn't just for David's sin of murder and adultery. This is true for all sin. David understands four very important things about his sin that he calls out, cries out in Psalm 51 about. And that is what sin is. What is it? Is it a lapse of judgment? Is it a mistake? Let me give you four images here in the first nine verses of Psalm 51. Notice you have language in verse 1 that says, blot out my transgressions. You see it again in verse 3. For I know my transgressions. Here's the first thing that David understands about his sin. That sin is breaking God's law. Faith family right here. Sin is not feeling guilty. It's realizing you are guilty. When you and I stand in the courtroom of life with God as the ultimate judge, the verdict unanimously is guilty. And the only hope David has is that the judge might, doesn't have to, show mercy. Here's the second image. Notice language like verse 2. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You even see it in verse 10. Create in me a clean art. Here's the second imagery and that is filth. It's a, it's a stain. It's a, it's a dirty rag. Sin is a heart that has been stained. But here's the problem. You can't wash it out with soap and water. OxyClean will do you no good. Why is that? Because brother or sister, it's on the heart. It, it, it's a sin of the heart. It's a stain of the heart. And it is, David says, it's filthy. It's disgusting. It is gross to God. And it smells like hell. Literally. I am guilty, and the only hope I have is that the judge will show mercy. I have been stained of filth, of sin. The only hope I have is that someone would come in and wash me clean. Are you getting the imagery of sin? Here's the third picture he gives us, and it's that of debt. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David understands that sin is a debt you can never repay. Sin is a debt you can never repay. It is piles and piles and piles and piles of bills. But here's the problem. You don't have any income. You don't have an ability to make income to pay the debt off that you owe to God. You say, where are you getting that? That idea of hide your face from me, it's, it's look away. It's a forgiveness language. Look away from what I've done. Blot it out. Cancel the debt. Forgive my iniquity. The only hope David has is for someone to come and pay the debt that he cannot pay. Here's the last image. It is an image of guilt, filth, debt, and the last one is the most severe of all, treason. Verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your 
sight. Here's what David understands. Sin is cosmic treason. Before his sin was, had anything to do with Bathsheba, had anything to do with Uriah, had anything to do with the nation of Israel, it had everything to do with God. Why? Because at the core of sin, you've heard me say this before, is we want to be our own God. It's the image of putting a little poison in the cup, slipping it to the king, the king drinks it, gets knocked off, so now we get to sit on the throne. David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Here's, here's the irony right here. You've got to get this. David, the king, now knows what it feels like to be a traitor. How's that for an image? That's a cold bathroom floor right there. That's not walking on the rooftop of a kingly palace thinking you're something you're not. David says, my sin was not a lapse of judgment. It wasn't a mistake. It is guilt before God. It is filth before God. It is a debt to God because it is treason against the very sovereign king of all the universe. And then David goes even further. Like, if you think this is bad enough, David understands the condition is actually worse because it's not just that this is the nature of sin, but he understands his nature to sin. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, my problem isn't just that I did sinful things, it's that I am a, say it with me, sinner. The problem's not just outside, the problem's within. I was born in iniquity. It is what the Apostle Paul says, we are all by nature children of wrath. Augustine one day was reflecting on as a child, as a kid growing up, why he would always steal his neighbor's pears. He did it all the time. And he was thinking on that one day and he said, I realized something. I don't even like pears. <laughs> and not only that, I could get pears anywhere. Why did I always steal from my neighbor's trees? And here's what he said. I stole because they were forbidden. In other words, he realized the issue wasn't the pear. The issue was deeper than that. It was that desire to rebel. By the way, friends, this is why I sweat and kick and stomp and preach and spit and all that against legalism and moralism makes me sick. Are you, are you getting that by now? After like almost two years into this, you're like, yeah, don't bring that up around him. It's because what you're trying to do, if you're trying to be moral, is what you're trying to do is you're trying to create a really good appearance, but the problem is inside you're filled with dead men's bones. I'm not saying don't have guidelines in your life, but if you think that what makes you right is because you're a moral person, it'll never work. In fact, it eventually it will crush you because that's not your problem. Your problem is within. David realizes the nature of his sin. He realizes his nature to sin, and he realizes the responsibility he has for his sin. Notice how, and I won't read it through the whole psalm, but he says things like, verse 1, my transgressions. Verse 2, my iniquity, my sin. 
Verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you and, only, and you only have I sinned. Here's what David's saying. I got nobody else to blame but me. We love to blame others, don't we? If Bathsheba wasn't so beautiful, if she wouldn't have been where she was at that particular time, her fault, maybe if Uriah would have been a better husband and gone back to see his wife, the serpent said, that woman you gave me, the family I was raised in, the work environment I have to work in. No, David understands when your image gets shattered by your sin, you come to a point of repentance, and repentance is saying, it's on me. I got nobody else to blame. Oh, there may be other factors, no doubt, but I have sinned. This is my transgression and then lastly, David understands that it impacts the people around him. The nature of his sin, his nature to sin, the responsibility for his sin. And then lastly, that his sin does have a ripple effect in the lives of others. These are verses I think we either skip or we don't know what to do with. Notice what he says in verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Here's what David's saying. Come in here close, right? Some of y'all make fun of me when I say that. I know that because I'm king, that my sin will have an impact on my people. So God, please do good to Zion. Please do good to Jerusalem. Don't let my sin affect them. Oh God, would you in your mercy, please? I understand the, the ripple effect this could have on others. So do good to Zion. Do good to Zion. Don't let them suffer under the consequences of my own sin. Right here, if you think like the culture tells you to think, that your own private life and your own private sin doesn't affect anybody, that's precisely what Satan wants you to think. But the Bible teaches you are an individual and you are in relationships with other people and you are in a society and you are part of a culture, which means when sin affects you, it affects everything you're connected with. It is why, and I'm not trying to be political, I'm just telling you, when people say redefining marriage won't have any impact on society, of course it will. When people say porn in secret won't have any impact on the marriage, of course it will. When people say, oh, just a little bit of gossip back here in the corner won't affect the church, of course it will. There is no such thing as my own individual sin that doesn't affect anybody else. David fully understands that the consequences of his sin do not just rest with him. And so here he is on the bathroom floor. Are you seeing that image? From king on the rooftop to broken man understanding what his sin is, his nature to that, his responsibility for that, and the impact of that. Aren't you glad that the psalm doesn't stop here? 
I need you with me for a second. I want you to know this is the best thing in the world that could have ever happened to David. It absolutely is, and it's the best thing that could ever happen to you. Repentance is a glorious, beautiful thing. Why? I don't think most preachers or teachers of Psalm 51 notice the shift that takes place in the second half of the psalm. Notice verse 12. This is great, guys. If you've been sleeping, wake up now. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Listen, faith family, if you don't get anything else I'm saying today, you better get this. Write it down. Put it in bold. Here's what David understands. Repentance is the pathway to joy. What? Repentance seems so sad. It seems so dark. It seems so bleak. No, repentance is what puts your joy back together. Why? Because sin is the ultimate joy killer. It's what wars and breaks it up within. And repentance is the road to restore joy. Oh God, first nine verses, I'm laying it all out. Here's my sin, here's what it is. I'm honest. Now because of that, restore the joy of your salvation in me. Isn't that beautiful? Have you ever thought about that before? That repentance is the road to joy, which means this. Are you a grumpy Christian? Don't point to anybody. Have you ever been around a grumpy Christian? Say amen. Here's what I'm convinced of. Grumpy Christians either are really not Christians or it's been a really, really long time since they've repented. Because unexpressed repentance is inexperienced joy. You will not experience the joy of the Christian life if you do not repent. That's true at the front door, and it's true all throughout the journey. This constant living, not just in the awareness of our sin, but as we'll talk about it in just a moment, the fact that that sin has been taken care of at the cross. It's not this Eeyore, woe is me, I'm such a terrible person, and this cloud follows me around, and, you know, Debbie Downer, wah, wah, wah. No, it's, man, God, I'm not playing games about my sin. I get it. It's ugly. It's rebellious. It's hellish. But it's actually in that honesty that I find joy. That's awesome. That was worth your free admission this morning. Be, here's why. Because I, I know way too many Christians who it's been a really long time since they've been broken over their sin. And what they don't see is it's robbing their joy. Notice how the shift continues that when, when David cries out for his joy to be restored... All of a sudden, the tone starts to change. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Now all of a sudden, here's what David's focused on. I want to witness. 
Come on, God. I mean, I've been honest about my sin. I'm asking you to restore my joy because here's what's going to happen when you restore my joy. I'm going to teach other transgressors your ways. In other words, I'm going to use this as an opportunity in my life to be a bold witness for you about what your grace and mercy can do in a sinner's life. Amen. You with me? I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. I'm going to be used by you as a witness to grace. That's what repentance does. When joy is restored in the Christian life through repentance, you can't help but be a witness. Let's lay it on the line. Here it is, faith family. We will not take the Great Commission seriously until we take our sins seriously. What the church of Jesus Christ needs is not better evangelism strategies, though I'm all for that. What we need is a fresh taste of the gospel of grace because repentance leads to joy and joy leads to an unstoppable witness for the grace that you've experienced in your life. You say, well, what's our evangelism strategy? Well, we have evangelism strategies, but here's one of them. I'm getting in your face every stinking week about Jesus to get you fired up about Jesus because when you're fired up about Jesus, you'll go tell the world about Jesus. Amen? And don't think I'm letting up. Do you see the shift? Laying on the bathroom floor, broken over his sin, God, restore my, the joy of your salvation and what? I'll tell people about the mercy I found. But that's not all. Notice the next verse. The, the shift continues. At the end of verse 14, he says, My tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. In other words, now David wants to sing a song. Does anybody ever notice this shift in Psalm 51 before? David is now saying, God, I want to sing. Oh, put a song on my lips. I'm not only going to witness because my joy is restored in you, is I'm going to worship when my joy is restored in you. It means this. If you don't repent consistently, you won't worship passionately. And I, hey, while we're being honest and telling it like it is, nothing could be more of a waste of time than religious people gathering on a Sunday morning singing religious songs. If that's what we are, shut this place down. Because it makes God sick. Here's what I want. I want people who have had their sin exposed by the Word of God, washed in the Son of God, who've been given a song from God, and they can't help but come together and sing it. That's worship. David says, give me a song and open my lips and I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing. Maybe the reason that sometimes we sit in worship services with songs and things like that and we're just kind of, mm -hmm -hmm. mm -hmm -hmm, is because we haven't repented. David goes from realizing his sin to having his joy restored. Why? Here's what we, we end with. Why? Or should I say how? 
How is David able to be so honest? How are we? Let me, let me set it up this way. Would you agree that you're free to be honest in your relationships when you know this? When you're assured that the other person you're in relationship with has your back, loves you unconditionally, is not going to forsake you. They're in this with you no matter what. That assurance provides an environment of honesty. Is that not true, humanly speaking? If you agree with that, say amen. Yeah. So then why is David able to be so honest? He knows something. And it is the key to the entire psalm, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Here it is according to, that is on the basis of, your steadfast love, according to, that is on the basis of, your abundant mercy. David knows this. I am guilty. I am filthy. I am in debt to God. I've committed treason against God. My very nature was being born in iniquity. I I got nobody else to blame but me. This could have an impact on the people that are around me. But I also know this, blessed assurance that my God is a merciful God who is abounding in mercy and steadfast in love. Therefore, I can come to him without any image and be honest about what I've done. David's freedom to repent was an assurance of the mercy of God. And if that was true of David, how much more for us? You say, how do I know God loves me? Really? Let me just tell you how you can know without any shadow of a doubt of God's love for you. Romans 5, 8 God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Say with me the first phrase of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What more proof do you need? Amen? The cross is all the assurance you need of Psalm 51, verse 1. There should be no excuse whatsoever for you to be honest about what you've done, honest about what you're struggling with, when you look at the cross and see that God has poured out on your head a five-gallon drum of mercy. You see, it's at the cross that repentance brings us to. Repentance brings us back to the cross, doesn't it? That's why it's the road to joy because at the cross we're reminded again and again and again and again and again of something beautiful. It's this. In Jesus you are not guilty. In Jesus 
you are washed as white as snow. In Jesus, every debt you owe God has been paid. In Jesus, the very fact that you're the one who deserves death, God says to you, I'll drink the cup so you can live. Faith family, please, get rid of your Christian image. Because I want your joy restored. And don't take my word for it. Listen to a man who was king. Here's what David would tell you. After his bathroom floor experience, when it's all said and done, it's not going to matter one bit how hot you are. It's not going to matter one bit how big that fish was. It won't matter what people think about your online profile. It won't matter one bit what your Christian image looked like. Because that don't impress God. You want to know what impresses God? A broken and contrite spirit. That is, after all, faith family, the Christian image. Let's pray. Oh God, that we would have that freedom. That we would have that freedom this morning to be honest before you about our sin and that we would be able to rest in what you have done for us in the cross. That we would know that you are a God of steadfast love, of abounding and abundant mercy. Give us the freedom to be real before you and experience real grace. In Jesus' name, amen.